Let us pray. Father, take our wills and make them truly yours, that we would be fully and wholly surrendered to you. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, you may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you and good to see some folks that are back from vacations and we got a few other folks that are on vacation and um, I said to somebody coming in, the Peterson family not being here, being on vacation reduces attendance by about 15%. <laughs> but it is so good to see all of you and good morning again to everyone watching via the live stream. We're so glad that you are joining us today. We're looking again at our New Testament reading from Ephesians today from chapter 2. Just by way of full disclosure, as we we begin looking at this text, um, back in the early spring, I actually preached from Ephesians chapter 2 because it came up in the lectionary that was prior to this series. So you may hear some things that sound familiar, even though I've reworked the sermon to align with the series that we're doing from the book of Ephesians right now. Um, But I did want to have full disclosure on that. And um, I would invite you to turn then in your Bibles or devices to chapter 2 of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2 is a familiar passage to many of us. And it contains a profound account of God's incredible, amazing grace. Verses 1 through 10 of Ephesians chapter 2 are, if you will, the final stone, which is foundational For everything else that we will look at and study in Ephesians, the last foundational stone then as St. Paul moves forward making application in the lives of both the Ephesians and us by God's word with application here. Ephesians chapter 2 is an account of the truth that God can and is more willing to essentially and dramatically transform us by Christ's power and work in us than we can even think or imagine. In the opening verses of chapter 2, St. Paul continues with his emphasis on the Ephesians and our identity as new creations in Christ, that we are new creations through Christ. And he draws a contrast between who we once were apart from Christ, and in fact, who every person is apart from Christ, and who God is making us to be. So we're looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, both today and next Sunday, Our focus this morning will be who we once were, focusing on verses 1 through 3. And the next Sunday, my focus will be who God has now made us to be, verses 4 through 10. And we'll have a number of sub-points as well. So as we dive into this, hang with me, because what we're dealing with here are deep and profound truths of God, which cannot be fully grasped apart from the illumination of the Holy Spirit, because what God expresses here flows from his awesomeness and the greatness of his being, and it's really beyond full human comprehension. And also, especially today, there are some hard or difficult truths from God's word, which we are given here, which we need to come to grasp and apply in our lives. So beginning with who we once were. St. Paul begins by reminding the Ephesians of who they and who we as well once were. Look at verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, 
following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There are three specific characteristics or traits of the person who does not know, the person who is apart from Christ, who is outside of God's transforming power and grace, which St. Paul identifies here. And what he paints here is a picture that depicts the state of you and me before and apart from the transforming power of Jesus. The first of these traits is this. You walked according to the values of this world. Beginning of verse 2. The condition which St. Paul begins with here is this. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. This is describing our spiritual state, not a physical one. It's clear that the original recipients of this letter, the Ephesians, were very much physically alive and they had been physically alive even before they received the message of the gospel. Paul begins with their old or their former condition in verses 1 through 3 before he explains God's grace and the power of God's grace in verses 4 through 10. Why does he do this? Well, the fact is that until we come to grasp our desperate need as human beings, that we are sinful and spiritually broken beyond any efforts of human repair or remedy through our own efforts, until we come to grasp that truth and that this state of being completely separates us from God, until we come to grasp this reality of our human depravity and brokenness, we will never begin to comprehend or grasp our need for God's grace, for God's mercy, for the work of God in our lives. Ouch. That's, that's a, the really hard part of this message. And it's something that is often hard for us to confront in our lives. Yet as one writer has said, promoting evangelism or bolstering self-esteem may seem far easier if you represent humankind's plight as a mere fly in the ointment rather than a poisoned well. And yet it is just that. But here's the other part. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In the midst of this hard message, in the midst of our brokenness and separation from God, we read that God is patient, that God desires that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We need to come to somehow grasp the depth and the breath and the riches of the grace and love of God toward us. Through Jesus Christ and God's heart or is for you and me to come into this living relationship with him. And it's not that we are simply spiritually dead. Ephesians here says that we are dead in our trespasses and sin. These terms trespasses and sin are used together here as synonyms. And the picture is not of an inadvertent misstep 
or a mistake. Rather, the picture here points to a continual state of consciousness, conscious, willful, and deliberate action against God's holy and righteous character. Again, that's hard stuff to hear and difficult to confront in ourselves. Yet this is the consistent testimony of Holy Scripture. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Romans chapter 3, beginning verse 10, says this, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have all become worthless, and no one does good, not even one. Paul continues by emphasizing that this is how you once walked. This is how I once walked. But did you hear that? How we once walked. Past tense. It's in the past as we come to life in Christ. And this gives us a picture of the day-to-day lives of these Ephesians before conversion to Christ. They walked about spiritually dead following the course of this world, following the desires of the flesh. And they, and even we, apart from Christ, didn't really grasp the gravity or the danger, the the precariousness of our situation. Back when I was a really, really little kid, like kindergarten age, in the early 1970s, living up in the Baltimore area, This is the year before Hurricane Agnes. So 1971, a horrible thunderstorm came through the Baltimore area. And I remember it very clearly, even though it's a long time ago now. Um, We had been at my grandparents' house in Hartford County, Maryland. They lived on the waterfront. And there was this huge storm line coming on the horizon. I can remember my dad saying, we need to get going. There's a bad storm coming. And this was like the storm of storms. And it was a 25-minute drive from my grandparents' house to my parents' house. And we went from no rain to this torrential downpour to where the streams over on the road leading back to where my family lived were flooded. We managed to get through, came home to no electricity. And I remember falling asleep, sitting on a chair, a lawn chair in the basement, holding a flashlight because my parents were bailing out the sump pump pit all evening and carrying it up the steps out into the lawn and dumping it to keep the basement from flooding. But my neighbor's my parents' neighbors across the street, their son at the time was a Baltimore County volunteer fireman. He's now in his 70s and was retired as a paid firefighter. But in this flooding, they had been called to Route 7 over in Baltimore, north of Baltimore and Baltimore County to the bridge over the Gunpowder River. And it goes down a hill. And right before you get to the bridge, there's a creek that runs along the side of the road. And there's a bar there. And a group of folks who had no business driving in the midst of this storm, had left that bar and turned out and turned down toward the river. And now they were stuck with some, the car stalled with some water. And Bill, my parents' neighbor, I remember him saying, it was unbelievable because when we got there, the water was around our ankles. And in just a matter of a couple minutes, it was up in the middle of my thighs. And so he and two other firefighters and the people from this car all ended up on the hood and the roof of the car and they positioned a tow truck up the hill on the road and ran the cable down. And so the first one up was Bill. They said, you go first because he also 
sustained an injury to his foot. So they pulled him up to where the tow truck was. And then beyond that, further up the hill was the fire engine with another cable. And the tow truck driver said to Bill, because his foot was injured, here, you go first. And pulled, so the fire engine cable then pulled him up to the fire engine. And when he turned around, the people from the car, the firefighters, the car, the tow truck, it was all gone. It had all been swept away. Everybody was drowned and killed. They lost the tow truck driver, two firefighters, and the people from that car that night. What's my point with telling a horrible, tragic story like that? They had no idea in that moment the gravity of the situation they faced and how quickly things changed and people's lives were lost. And what is my point? People who are dead in their trespasses and sin have no grasp of the dire situation they are in, the gravity of the situation that they face. The second thing we read is that you walked around according to the ruler of the power of the air. Not only do we walk when we are dead in our trespasses and sin according to the values of this world, we are also under the control of the prince of the power of the air. Now I know for us in this era, this, that is unusual language, but it would have been readily understandable to the Ephesians. In Greek thought at the time, the term air was the space that filled everything between the earth and the moon, if you will. Lower air, that closer to the earth, was believed to be impure. And this also connects with Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 21 that we looked at last week, talking about when Christ was raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of the Father in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. These speak of spiritual powers and authority. And in the, the understanding at the time, they would have dominated that area of lower air in a sense. Higher air in Greek understanding was pure. Paul is specifying locality in this way to connect with the thinking of his readers. Speaking of the sphere or the realm of activity of Satan, the realm of impurity, the realm that is under Satan's domination. What in the plain language for us in our day, what is said here points to the fact, points to the fact that we are not all, this is not all just a matter of walking according to the sons of disobedience, as verse two says, but what is going on in anyone who has not experienced redemption and transformation through Christ is that they are dead and stuck in this world and they will behave accordingly to that. So often we expect people, non-Christian people, to behave or to know better or act differently. And we ask, why don't they know better? We've heard people do that. We've been guilty of that. He should know better than that. She knows she shouldn't act like that. Really? If someone is dead in their trespasses and sin, they're simply acting according to that nature that nature that is apart from Christ. And why should we expect anything else? You know, we, there was a time in our society when there was at least a Christian veneer. 
I'm not talking necessarily about genuine faith, but a Christian veneer where people had somewhat of a biblical frame of reference and maybe there was some truth, even though it wasn't redemptive, it was a social or cultural thing in terms of, well, they should know better than acting that way. But folks, we are way beyond that at this point in our culture and in the world we live in. We live in a post-Christian culture and the reality is, as it has been all along, but is more pronounced and poignant even now, don't expect people who don't know Christ to act as if they do, as if they're supposed to get their acts together before they come to Christ. What we're talking about here really isn't just a matter of outward behaviors. It's something that is internal. It goes much deeper. It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of our essence of our very being. There's a true story from 1992. A Los Angeles parking control officer came up upon an Eldorado Cadillac, a brown Eldorado that was illegally parked next to a curb on the day that was street sweeping day. The officer dutifully wrote out a ticket, ignoring the man that was seated at the driver's wheel, paid him no attention. The officer reached over, placed the ticket on the windshield as was the normal procedure. The driver of the car didn't move, made no excuses, no argument ensued, and with good reason, the driver of the car had been dead for 10 to 12 hours. And the officer was so preoccupied with ticket writing that he was unaware of anything out of the ordinary, got back in his car and drove away. What's the point here? Many people around us are dead in their transgressions and sins. And what needs to catch our attention most is their need. Did you hear their need? Not their offenses. They don't need a citation from us. They need to hear about a Savior who loves them and died for them. Amen. It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of a need for God's transforming power and at the very essence and core of our being. The final thing we see here is that you lived according to carnal desires. The unconverted, including the Ephesians and each of us before encountering Christ's transforming power, live according to the passions of the flesh and really without any restraint. Our bent is to seek carnal, fleshly pleasure, we follow human sinful impulses without godly restraint. And this is our bent. This is our nature. The idea of the flesh here is that which opposes God, that which is contrary to God's character. Now we're hearing all the hard stuff this morning. Next Sunday, as my old pastor say, I'll heal you. <laughs> because we'll hear about the power of God's transformation and work available to us. But what do we learn from all of this in Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3? What can we assess from all of this difficult stuff that we are reminded of here? Well, first we assess that from, apart from God's grace, this is the lost state or condition of every single person. That may not be popular in our culture with all of its human self-actualization, and human potential, but it is true because it's the truth of Scripture. And the second thing we see is that there's nothing we can do about it in and of ourselves 
through our own efforts. A person who is dead cannot bring himself or herself back to life. We need a savior. We need a savior. But again, I don't want to simply leave us here because this is the prelude, if you will, to God's postlude next week. If we left things here, it may seem hopeless. And through human perspective and a merely human effort, it is. However, let's conclude today with the first two words of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. And these are those words, but God. But God. But God. If it wasn't for that but, we would remain dead in our trespasses and sin. But God, through his Son, offers us life, offers to make us new creations in Christ, offers to transform us. But God. So how do we see and understand ourselves in relation to God? Do we take credit for things that God has done for the good and gracious work of God in our lives for ourselves? Or do we point to him? our hearts filled with gratefulness and thankfulness to him. And how do we view others? How do we view those around us? Those who in so many cases are truly dead in their trespasses and sin. Do we look down at them in disdain? They ought to know better. They shouldn't do that. How horrible of them. Or do we see them through the eyes of Christ as people created in the image of God and precious in the sight of God? And do we view those people in that way through a biblical lens and through the illumination of the Holy Spirit enough that we will step out of our comfort zone in our workplace, in our neighborhood, where our kids go to school or where we go to college or high school or middle school. At the store, will we step out enough, even when it's uncomfortable, to get to know those people, to hear their story, to remember but God and that God has the power to transform them? And will we step out even when it makes our lives a little messy, or are we afraid we're going to get contaminated if we, if we get too close to somebody who doesn't know Jesus? God calls us. He calls me to get to know and to walk with those folks. And as we do that, to share the transforming power of Christ, to share the love of God, not out of some, I'm better than you, looking down from a mount on high, but friend to friend peer to peer, a sinner saved by grace to someone who needs to know the reality of that transforming grace. Who has God placed in your life this week? Let's, talk about, let's not talk about this theoretically. Who is God placing in your life this week at work, at the store, in your neighborhood, at school that he's calling you to come alongside of? that he's calling you to befriend, 
that he's calling you to share Jesus, the bread of life, with. So that they too can know this transforming grace and power of God. Who is he calling us as a church to reach? Or do we want to, and I'm not saying that we are, or do we want to become this little cocoon and our own little safe, good-feeling Christian club? Because we don't want church to get messy because people that don't know Jesus might come and not have everything fixed yet. If people think, or we think people are going to get fixed before they come to Jesus, we've got it all backwards, friends. Just like we didn't get fixed before we came to Jesus and he's still doing his fixing work and his healing work in us. God's calling us wherever he's placed us and where he's placed us together as a church to be those kind of Christians, to be those kinds of believers that reach out a hand and share the transforming power of Christ, the love of Christ to people who desperately need to know him. Not just to place a citation on the window and say, you're lost and you're dead in your trespasses and sin and move on. So who is God speaking to you about even this week? You all know I love to show dahlias and if my dahlia society friends watch, they're gonna, I'm gonna blow my cover here. But part of the reason I like showing dahlias, you know, when you're in ministry for a long time, more and more and more of your circle of people and influence becomes other Christians. And for me, the Dahlia Society is one of those places that God places, has allowed me to be that I interact with people from all kinds of walks of life and people who are Jewish and Hindu and unchurched and gay and straight and you name it, we have it in the Dahlia Society. And yet that's a place where God allows me to interact with those people and build relationships and share the gospel. Where is God placing you? Where is God calling you to be even this week and this month? Because, but God, but for God, it would be you and me that are still dead in our trespasses and sin. So as we pray this morning, I want to take a moment and I want you to pray and ask the Lord who he wants you to come alongside of. Wherever you live, retired, working, young, old, and who he wants you to build relationship with, to invest in, to come alongside of as a friend so that you can share the word of life. Would you pray with me for a moment and pause and ask God who he's placing in your path? And in mine, let us pray. Father, give us your eyes, your eyes of grace, mercy, and compassion. And a keen awareness that apart from you, we were dead in our trespasses and sin. And that you were doing your good, gracious, and transforming work in us. And by your grace, may it continue, Lord. Father, even now, speak to us about who you have placed in our lives. Who you are calling us to reach. To share the word of life. To give a word of hope. To be image bearers of the eternal son of God with. 
Show us, Lord. Give us your grace. Lord, may we not shrink back because it gets messy or difficult or sometimes awkward or because of personal pride or fear of rejection. But may we step out in your love and your gracious boldness. And Father, I pray that you would do the same in us together as a church family as we reach this community. And Lord, even as we, by your grace, do that, and church maybe gets a little messy sometimes, may we not shrink back, but know, God, that this is what you've called us to do because this is what Jesus, the eternal Son of God himself, did. And fill our hearts, we pray, with your life and your power and your love. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.